Well, let's turn together in our Bibles to the book of John. We are going to be looking at John chapter 11. Uh, This morning we spoke of how God often leads us into trials, into places where we would never imagine God would direct us. But he leads us into those trials with, with purpose, with plan, with provision. And one of those places where we see God's providence is that is perhaps the most difficult for us to wrap our minds around is, is how God could allow certain difficulties and tragedies to ever come our way. And we see it in the book of Job where God allowed Job to lose many of his loved ones, to lose his property. And that was very hard for Job, but we see that God had his good plan, a, a, a plan, and he was He was using Job's life to speak of the suffering that would eventually be seen in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we don't understand all of God's purposes in our trials and in our suffering, but we see here in John that God is not aloof to our pain, that he sees the trials we bear and he has comfort that he gives to us in these times and places in our lives. So let's Get the text before us, and then we're going to see this in relation to uh, Lord's Day 22, as we'll see it as it connects to the confession uh, that we believe in the resurrection of life, something that we reiterate, reiterate every week as we take up those words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the resurrection and the life. So John chapter 11, beginning here in verse 17 together. Now when Jesus came... He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to Jesus, uh, to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. In his spirit, and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. 
But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now let's take a look at Lord's Day 22 as we confess this resurrection power that is in our Lord. I'll ask a question and then we can repeat it together as a congregation. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Notice how the confession focuses in on the comfort that this brings to us as well as that will be our focus uh, this evening as we dive into God's word. One of the cries that you hear from both Mary and Martha as they come to the tomb is a cry that I think you often hear in the face of devastating tragedy. It is a cry of asking God why he would not prevent what has occurred. Both Mary and Martha, you will notice, say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a question of, God, why did you allow this tragedy to happen? God, if you cared, why would you allow that semi to run through the lights? God, if you were concerned for our family, why did you allow those loved ones to go on that devastating trip? God, why would you not prevent these circumstances from happening? Why would you allow my family member to come up down with this terrible disease? These are questions that are all too common in the face of tragedies when we see them in the lives of believers. And we can very easily in these moments tend to become bitter in our hearts as we look at what has occurred in our life it can be very easy for bitterness to settle in, for an anger towards God, to begin to think that God is just aloof, that he's some bystander to the tragedies that have occurred. 
And it's in the face of tragedy that we need to hear the voice of God the most, the comfort of God and what he would say to us in these hard and challenging times. And right here in this passage, this well-known story of, Re- of Lazarus and how Jesus would resurrect this man, we have a case study for how God relates to our pain, for how God is able to speak into these moments that are devastating for us with the comfort that only he can bring. And so we see here that God is not aloof. He is not some bystander. No, Jesus gives us here a portrayal to how God himself reacts to our pain and to our loss. And we're going to see Jesus come to both Martha and Mary and he's going to administer these comforting truths that are going to, to comfort these uh, uh, Martha and Mary in their loss. He gives Martha the comfort of truth and he gives Mary the comfort of sympathy. And so we're going to see how Jesus is able to give them the truth that they need, the comfort that they need in the situation that they face. And then we'll finally see how Jesus also gives to all of us the comfort of demonstration. How this is not just a story about Martha and Mary, but this is a story about us all, that we all can derive a deep source of comfort from. So we see here that Martha and Mary have sent the note to Jesus, and they've told Jesus, Jesus, he who you, whom you love is ill. Now, Jesus is a two days trip away, and when he receives this note, it seems that Lazarus must have died. Because Jesus stays an extra two days in the village that he is in, and then he spends another two days coming to where Mary and Martha are. And so now, Jesus has been gone four days. And Martha and Mary are well into the grieving process. In that culture and time, you would spend seven days mourning with your family, mourning with those uh, whom you love over the loss that has just taken place. And so now they've had plenty of time to think back on what has just occurred. And you can imagine the thoughts that must have been circulating in their minds as they began to think to themselves, what happened here? We sent the message in time. Jesus knows that his friend is sick. Does he not care? Where is Jesus? What does he have to say to the trial that we are facing? If you look in this passage, you turn back just a few verses. You look at verse 3. You can see that Jesus got the note. He whom you love is ill. Verse 5 It tells us that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So what we would expect to read is that Jesus then rushed down, right? He dropped everything and he made it his way down to his friend. But that is not what we read. Jesus understood the predicament of his friend, that his friend was dying. But it says that Jesus remained where he was an extra two days. And this response can almost seem heartless. What is Jesus doing? Does he not care? And John is very careful to show that Jesus deeply cares for his friend. What Jesus says is taking place here is that he is going to display the glory of God. And even though that is one of the primary 
themes that we are seeing taking place here is that God is going to display his glory. What we see running strongly in parallel with this theme is that Jesus deeply loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. It is not as if one has to, you know, God's pursuit, Jesus' pursuit of his glory treads down upon his love for his disciples. No, Jesus' love for his disciples and his pursuit of his glory go hand in hand. They are not mutually exclusive. They complement each other. And Jesus waits an extra two days. And now John picks up on how Jesus comes to meet both Martha and Mary. And John does something very interesting here. He hints our minds back to the very natures of Mary and Martha. You remember the story of, of Martha and Mary where Martha is busy in the house. She is providing for the guests. She is, they, they have Jesus in their home and she is running around doing the dishes, preparing the food. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus in that situation uh, is confronted by Martha. Martha says, Jesus, aren't you going to say something to my sister? I'm working my tail off and my sister is doing nothing. And Jesus says to Martha, your sister here, Mary, has chosen the better half because she has chosen to contemplate with her God. She's chosen to spend this time with me, to dialogue with me. And John hints our minds back to this very uh, two different natures of these sisters. As it says in our text that Mary remained seated in the house. And he's reminding us that they, they have a different temperament, a different disposition. And so we can learn here of how Jesus knows his sheep so well. He knows them enough that to administer the right medicine. He doesn't give the same diagnosis or the same medicine to Martha and Mary. No, he gives them the comfort that they need for the situation they face and for the people that they are. He knows his sheep so well. And so the first person to come to Jesus is Martha. We read in 21 how Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And it can seem here that Martha is quite sincere. And she's saying to Jesus, Lord, I know that you've resurrected others in the past, how you raised up Jairus' daughter, how you were able to uh, do these miraculous things in the past. And even now, Jesus, even though you, you, you missed the note, you didn't get here in time, even now, you are able to change things. And though it can seem sincere, what is more likely going on here is that Martha is just giving a platitude. She's giving a bumper sticker theology. She knows what the right Thing to say is in this situation, but her heart is far from being ministered of the truth of what she is saying. Because if you look at what Jesus says to her, Jesus responds to her statement by saying, your brother will indeed rise. And notice what Martha does. She doesn't jump on that. She doesn't launch on that and say, good, that's exactly what I was hoping you were going to do. No, Martha says, I know way down the road at the final resurrection, you are able to resurrect my brother. And that's why when you look at the Martha at the tomb a little bit later, and Jesus tells them to roll away the stone, it's Martha who says, Jesus, what are you doing? There's going to be a big stench that comes out of the tomb. 
Why are you doing this? And Jesus has to say, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Martha here knows the right thing to say. It's very common in the face of tragedy that you talk to people and they can say the right truths. You know, I know all things work together for good. I know that, that, that God has us in his plan and his, his providence. They know the right thing to say. But the truth of that, the comfort of that, is far from their hearts. And so notice how Jesus addresses this issue. Jesus, in this context, gives one of those most powerful I am statements, right? Those I am statements are all significant because each one is revealing the very identity of the messianic king. And so Jesus is, is, is using this language to show that he is truly God himself. Because where does that term I am come from? It comes from Exodus chapter 3. When Moses sees God in the burning bush and God declares his name to Moses, I am who I am. And so Jesus uses this language and he is using this, this, these terms to help reveal to people his messianic identity as the true son of God. So he would say, I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. And here, for the fifth time, God is going to use this I am statement as he declares, I am the resurrection and the life. He goes on in verse 25. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so what Jesus is doing is he is pulling the truth, right? Martha believes at the very last day, the resurrection. Yes, that is comforting. I know you can do it then on the very last day. And Jesus pulls that future truth and he brings it into her present situation. And he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And so what he is saying is because of who I am, resurrection and life are bound up in me. You may think that your brother is dead and gone, but if he believes in me, I'm not just the cause of resurrection. I am the person who in my identity is resurrection and life. And so if he believes in me, his life is bound up in mine. Your brother is secure and he is safe in me because I am indeed the resurrection and the life. And the catechism works to bring home this very truth to us in question 58. It says, how does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? And the response is, even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. So after this life, I will have perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined. A blessedness in which to praise God eternally. And notice that we experience this eternal joy already now. I experience this in my heart because I'm in relationship with the person who is resurrection in life. I can know that I too will receive this great promise. My life will be resurrection resurrected. I will have life because my life is bound up in his life. And so what Jesus is saying to Martha, you see me, 
you see my hands, you see that I'm alive and I'm well, then you can know that your brother is indeed alive and well. And we can all take this truth home to the bank that we know that the Son of God is dwelling in the heavens. He's ascended and he is never to come down again. He is alive and he is well. And because he lives, we too shall live. It's a truth that we can take home, that we need to take home and bring near to us that we have life in the Son of God. And because he lives, I too shall live. And what I see Jesus doing here is not so much pointing Martha's attention to his ability. He's pointing her attention to the promises that he has made to his people. If we focus our attention on the ability of God, I think we're often going to become frustrated. Right? God is the God who made heaven and earth. He's the God who designed all things. Is anything too small for our God to do? The nations are like a drop in the bucket before him. No, our God is immensely powerful. But has God promised that life will be easy? That he's going to use his power in such a way that we're not going to have difficulties or trials or pains? No, Jesus said in this world you're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation. And so he points Martha to what he has promised. That in him, in who he is, he is able to give resurrection and life. And when we run to the promises of God, there's such wells of comfort that we ought to wrap ourselves in. Like truths that Jesus is the good shepherd. That he is the one who is who's able to work all things out for our good. That he is the one who loves us and knows us and cares for us. And will hold us through to the end. Promises that he is able to forgive our sins. To cleanse us. To robe us in his righteousness. And to present us before his father in perfect glory. These are promises we can take to the bank. Where we can find immense comfort for our souls. There is such a rich comfort to be found in the promises of God. And so we see Jesus bringing this comfort of truth to Martha, but in the second place, we see that Jesus brings the comfort of sympathy to Mary. After speaking with Martha, or uh, after Jesus speaks with Martha, Martha goes and she gets her sister Mary. And remember, Mary has a slightly different temperament. If it's not hinted at in the language of John, it's also noticed in her very words, because you'll see her speech begins the very same way her sister does. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that's where she stops. There's no prospect of hope. There's no, Lord, if you do something now, things could be different. No, Martha, Mary is overcome with grief. She's overcome by the tragedy of the situation. And notice that Jesus' response to her grief is very different from her sister. He does not say, you know, Mary, here's a, here's a wonderful truth. I am the resurrection and the life. He does not chide her for her lack of faith. No, Jesus relates to her pain, and we see that he is deeply moved. There are three things I see. We see in Jesus three emotions that come out as he sympathizes with Mary's predicament. And the first is in anger that begins to stir up in Jesus. Look at verse 33 with me. It says, And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. 
And this, this language of being deeply moved is one of anger. Every other place you'll see this in, in the New Testament, it speaks of a anger stirring within. And so you take the example of the lady who, who, who poured out an alabaster flask of oil on the feet of Jesus. This, this precious ointment, this expensive ointment. You'll read that the disciples rebuked her. They were angry with her. They said, Jesus, what are, what are you doing? Why are you allowing her to pour out this oil? Don't, doesn't she know that we could sell this oil and we could give the money to the poor? It seems to be a waste of oil. And they are angry about what she is doing with this precious ointment. And so here we see the same word used to express what is happening in the Son of God, that there's an anger that is stirring within. Now, what is he angry about? It seems that Jesus here is expressing an anger at the manifestations of the kingdom of Satan, of the evil that he sees that lies before him. And when he sees the work of him who came to destroy and to kill, it stirs in Jesus in anger against the manifestations of the kingdom of darkness. It's not so far off, I think, from how humans often experience grief. Maybe you've been to the hospital and you're visiting a loved one and they had come down with some disease and you can see this disease taking the life out of the one that you love. I think it's very likely that you're going to leave that hospital saying, I hate this disease. I hate how it is taking the life of the one that I love. And you, you have this anger that stirs within you as you see the kingdom of Satan, as you see the works of sin manifest, manifesting itself. There's something that stirs in you to say, this is not right. This is not the way things are supposed to happen. And that is what we see going on in the heart of Jesus. And he's not only moved to anger, but we also read at the end of that verse that he was greatly trouble. And this term speaks of a highly distressful state. You know, the disciples, uh, when they were told that Jesus would soon die, we read that they were greatly troubled. When uh, Jesus says that Judas is going to betray him, we read that he was greatly troubled. And now here, as Jesus is before the tomb of his friend, we read that he is greatly troubled. This is an event that is hitting to the core of who Jesus is. I've seen very few tragedies in my life, but the ones that I have seen, I know there's different responses, right? Some people are completely shocked. They don't know how to respond. They almost become numb to the events that are occurring. Other people let out a blood-curdling scream as they are, don't know how to process what has just occurred in their lives. But all of, these, all of these different responses are showing that something has tapped them to the core of their being. And what we see here in the Son of God is that he too was struck down to the cords of his being. He is distressed at the situation. And what this tells you and me is that the Son of God can sympathize with our every experience. He knows our pain. He knows our grief. He knows how much it hurts and how much this pain and loss takes from us. And so the third emotion that we see from our great king is not only in anger, not only 
a distress of the situation, but a deep compassion that moves within his being. We read in verse 35, the shortest verse in the whole Bible, right? Jesus wept. And thank God for this human uh, expression of the compassion that is in the heart of our Savior. Lest we think that he's willing to, to tread upon us, that he's willing to hurt his people in order to pursue his glory. No, Jesus loved his friends so much that when they saw the tears that were coming down Jesus' face, the Jews who had come to mourn with Martha and Mary, they saw these tears and they said, see how Jesus loved his friend. See how he loved that man. I'm so thankful for that human expression of, of Jesus' compassion for us. Jesus knows our pain. He knows our loss. And even though Jesus knew he was going to resurrect his friend, even though he knew that shortly things were going to be different, it was right and proper to express his grief for what had occurred in their lives. And this is why it's proper and right that we grieve for those that we lose. Even though we may know them and we know that they're in a better place or with the Lord, it is right and proper that we grieve for those that we lose because we love them. And they were a part of us and they spent so much time with us here on earth. And this is a gift from God and it's right to mourn for their loss even though we may know they are indeed in a better place. God is not oblivious to our pain. He mourns just like we do. And we see this here at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. But Jesus does not just leave the comfort of sympathy and the comfort of truth. He also leads, leaves us with the comfort of demonstration. Look at what Jesus does. Jesus comes to the tomb and he asks that the stone be rolled away. And now four days have passed. And it seems that the reason Jesus has delayed his journey, he's delayed his response, is to prove to us that he is not just resuscitating his friend Lazarus. He is indeed resurrecting his friend Lazarus. The Jews believed in three days that the spirit could kind of hover over a dead body. And in those three days, the spirit may come back to the body. And Jesus waits till the fourth day to prove beyond a doubt this is no resuscitation. No, I am resurrecting my friend. Because we need to understand that Jesus is able to resurrect us when our bones are deteriorated, when our, our, our flesh has turned to dust. God is able to speak into these dark, dead situations and bring us to life. And he proves this here at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And what he is doing is proving the very statement that he made just a few moments earlier as he said to Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And that is what Jesus is going to show us here. And so Jesus rolls away the tomb and he shouts into the tomb, come forth, Lazarus. And Lazarus comes bursting out of the tomb. He doesn't need help. He doesn't need some people to, to help carry him out of the tomb. No, he is alive. He is well. He is whole. One commentator, I love what Augustine says of the situation. He says, Jesus needed to specify that he was speaking to his friend Lazarus because if Jesus just said, come forth, the whole world would have got out of their grace. And so Jesus says, Lazarus, my friend, come forth. And Lazarus comes bursting out of the tomb uh, just 
renewed and whole and well. Why? Because Lazarus was united to the one who is resurrection, who is life. And because he believed in Jesus, he has life in Jesus, and he is made whole and well and renewed. I wondered why Jesus would say, I am the resurrection before his friend's death and not his own. Because if you think about it, Jesus knew full well that he himself was uh, able to take up his life again. Jesus said earlier in the gospel, I am able to give my li- I- I'm able to lay down my life and I'm able to take it up again. And so Jesus could have said this statement before his own death and proved it by his own resurrection. I believe the reason is, is for you and for me. Because it might be one thing for us to look at the Son of God and say, oh yes, I understand how someone like Jesus, who was perfect, who was the Son of God, who has power, all this power in himself, I understand how he is able to come to, to give himself life again, to resurrect from the grave. But could he really do this for you? Could he really do this for me? And here in our text, we are given a case study to see that, yes, God can indeed do this for you and for me. For all of us as God's people, he proves he is the resurrection and the life as he calls his friend Lazarus. And and by the power of his voice, his friend comes forward. Question 57 of the Catechism tells us that this is a case study into what will happen to each and every one of us. And we confess that the resurrection of the body tells us that not only will our souls be taken immediately after this life to Christ's head, but also our very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Why? Because we believed in Christ. And since we believed in him, our life is bound up in his. And we too will experience the exact same thing Lazarus experienced, except it will only be better. Because our bodies will be made like Christ's glorious body. Not like Lazarus, who would grow old again, who would become sick again, who would die yet again. No, we will be made like Christ. And that will be a body that is powerful, that will not grow tired, that will not grow weak, that will not endure any pain or any loss. If you want to read about what that resurrected body is like, you can read 1 Corinthians 15 as it describes the state that we will be in, in our resurrected bodies as we no longer deal with the troubles and trials of this world. That is how we will be made when Jesus comes back on the, cr- on the clouds and he speaks to every one of us to come forth and to inherit uh, the eternal life that he has prepared for us. And so Jesus says what he is doing here is so that each and every one of us may believe this truth for ourselves. Look at what Jesus says in his prayer. Father, I thank you, verse 41, that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people who, will, who are standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. The delay, the glorious assertion that I am the resurrection and the life. Why was Jesus doing all of these things? To prove to you and me that he has power over death. Because most of us, if we were to wager it, on who is going to win. Is Jesus going to be more powerful or is death going to be more powerful? We would look at the track record of death and say, death has won every other time in human history. There's not one person who has been able to defeat death on their own. And so we might be tempted to say, oh no, death is going to win this battle. And Jesus proves in a moment that he is far more powerful than death. 
as he calls forth his friend, and his friend is not bound by death. No, death has been defeated by the Son of God. This is the one who has swallowed up death, who has put death to death, who is the victor, the conqueror, the triumphant over the grave. And he is proving this to you and me. Father, I did this that they may believe that you have indeed sent me. Death, the final enemy, has no power over Christ. He is indeed the victor, the conqueror of his foes. And so what is revealed at the end, quite plainly, is Jesus' love and his glory. Jesus said to Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You can imagine, as Lazarus comes walking out of the grave, how all those tears, how all that pain, how all that tragedy, all that waiting, all that mourning floods away as they see their brother coming, back, coming out to them, whole, well, renewed, restored. This is the power that is in the Son of God. And that will clearly demonstrate itself in the end as Jesus comes again on the clouds and he calls us forth. You can imagine how all that pain, all that loss, all that tragedy swept away as we see our Savior and we see all those whom we love and we rejoice and praise Him for an eternity to come. The calm will be all the better for the storms that we endure, as the hymnist so wonderfully puts it. And so the question we need to ask ourselves today is, do we believe this? It's the question that Jesus gave to Martha. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe that I am who I said I am, that I can do what I say I can do, that I, in myself, am resurrection and life, and I can give this to you? And if you believe this, you can be assured that your life is bound up in his, and that when he comes again, you will be restored, you will be made new, you will be united with him who has loved you from the beginning. That's the assurance we can have as Romans says, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from this love, not even death itself. Christ is the conqueror. I wonder who would dare to resist such a savior. You know, death is a problem that we all have to face in this life. And many want to procrastinate this problem. They want to hide it. They want to act like it's not there. But we will all have to face death at some point unless the Lord returns again. And Jesus here provides the answer to humanity's biggest problem. We are all dying. And Jesus gives the hope that he is able to restore us, to make us new, to provide life everlasting. It's not going to come in the medicine world. It's not going to come by any of our new inventions or our, our ways of trying to get around it. No, life eternal is bound up in Jesus. As Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may know you. And if you know him, your life is secure, your life is safe, and you will praise him for an eternity to come. That is the comfort that we as Christians have, and it is rich, it is immense, it is deep. And so may you believe this, and may you have this comfort through your life, to know that in life and death, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, how we thank you that you are able to 
Give us such a rich source of comfort. We pray especially for anyone who's gone through tragedy or trial and loss. Lord, would you speak to them as your sheep? Would you give them the comfort of sympathy, the comfort of truth? And would you remind them that you are going to work all things out for your glory, that your love is not in contradiction to your plans and your purposes for displaying the glory of our Savior and God. But we will see in the end how both of these are parallel to each other. That we will say at the end, Oh, how you loved us, and oh, how glorious is your name. And so we thank you that you speak to us. You speak in the midst of our trials and tragedies for the hope that is in you, and that we are a people that have so much to be thankful for. We pray in the words of Isaiah that you would come today and you would comfort, yes, comfort, we, your people. In Jesus' name, amen.